Our next questions come from Mario from Brazil. And I'm going to read those for him. Considering that there is a complete database containing all real and could be past and all potential futures, and that it's possible to consciously visit and run any specific person's life and run any of those person's what-if lives for one who has the conscious ability, is it not possible that someone unconsciously goes there to live any of those alternatives and to feel or think of it as being really there and living it? How would the person doing it really know the difference if he is not aware fully <coughs> of what's going on? And if it is so, the whole scenario could or would be open for experimentations like that. Okay, I'm not sure I got all of that, but the idea that you would unconsciously, just uh, by accident, get so involved in one of these uh, getting data from one of these databases that you wouldn't be able to distinguish it from otherwise your your uh, uh, life here in the in the uh, simulator. I think that is highly unlikely. Um, you may just by circumstance and the way your mind and intent works jump in and out of those databases. But in order to go there, stay there and be consistent there, you have to really focus and intend to do that. So I don't think it's possible for somebody to casually just get into a database and then get confused about where they are. I think they uh, are not going to do that. The, 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 uh, what it takes to get into a database and, and get into it as if you're living there, as if you are a part of that action, uh, takes a lot more focus than what you're going to put into it just casually. So you're not going to stumble into that. But yes, these databases are available, and yes, you can do what-if what if analysis. Um, but first, you need to practice your meditation to the point that you can stay in a point consciousness state for, oh, you know, an hour or so in order to explore these, which for most people is a very difficult thing to do. So you would really have to be fully aware of what you're doing, practice <clears throat> it, and experiment with it and know precisely what it is you're doing. It's not something yes. you would stumble in. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Um, his next question, on the extension of PMR simulation detail, given the nature and seemingly objective of our reality, it doesn't seem impossible that what we call the whole universe, PMR, be nothing more than just a background stage for what is being simulated here at the center of the stage. That the definition or detailing of it would decrease with increasing distance from the Earth's center. This would surely save a lot of computing power. Given this, okay. if I had to simulate other kind of situation in other planets with other beings, I would rather do it in a complete different simulation instead of adding a lot of crossed complication in an existing one. Is it reasonable to expect that the other planets in this same PMR are inhabited? Just expecting we reach the point when if we, when if it could be useful to us to make some kind of contact with some of those. Okay, there's. Uh, I get that. It's there's two ideas here, and uh, they're kind of in competition with each other, which is why he asked the question. And <clears throat> one is 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 there a is there a good reason 
that the system would want to populate our our virtual reality, our physical universe, with other life forms that we may interact with someday in the future? Would that be a thing it might want to do? And of course, the question there is is several. One is, you know, how many IUOCs does it need? How many individuated units of consciousness does it need? How many seats does it need in the simulation? If it needs a lot more seats than the seven and a half billion that we give it, if it needs another hundred billion, well, that won't happen here because we can't support that many. Then it would have to put it would have to put beans in other uh, in other planets, other places. But when you look at more seats, there's always in such a situation a place that is optimal, and that is that if you add more seats. The overhead in adding the seat, which means you have to produce another data stream and other kind of overhead involved in it, becomes more expensive than what you get back. See, if you've got seven and a half billion people like we do now, if you add one more, how much better does that make the whole and how much does that cost? See, so those two things, those two variables will make a sweet spot somewhere where you've got about all the seats you need. If you put any more in, it's just going to cost you without giving you back enough to warrant the cost. So there is a sweet spot. Now, where that is for the system, I don't know. Seven and a half billion seems to be a lot of seats in the simulator to me. And I know there's other um, uh, virtual realities somewhat like ours that are physical like ours with a tight rule set. And they also have fairly large populations. So how many seats does the system have to have that's one of the key ideas and it's really hard to uh, to come with a with a real definitive answer for that other than it would seem that <clears throat> that sweet spot uh, wouldn't need you know let's say you know hundreds of billions it would seem that you've passed the sweet spot on something like that but now I'm just making Making that up, I don't really know. The conscious system would be have to figure that out. <clears throat> anyway, that's one idea. And the other idea, so that's kind of a um, in the middle, not not real negative or positive either way. But there's one idea that's positive, that why the system want to do that, and that is that you know what we are what we've done here is we have a reality, and it is a fractal reality. And it has at every level of the reality gone through the same process where single individual units, let's say we started with bacteria, just single bacteria, they had to learn to cooperate and work together to make multi-celled things. And the multi-celled things had to cooperate with other multi-celled things to make cells that had differentiated organs like humans, more complexity. So you see that's, the way it works, more complexity, lower entropy. Now, we humans aren't cells, so we're not going to bond together shoulder by shoulder to make one other bigger animal. That's not the way we work. We're going to have to learn to care, you see, to love, to cooperate, and that's how we're going to make one bigger thing, not physically, but with consciousness, with caring and with love, and that will produce something that, is more than all of us individually put together. There's there's synergy there. The result of that is more than just the, the input. We will create something larger. Okay, now the point is, once we've done that with our consciousness, how valuable is it to do it again? 
In other words, let's say now we find out that there's, you know, 20 other uh, planets in our Milky Way and they all have beings and we now interact with them. So then the next stage in this would be all of those beings from all the different planets learn how to care, be cooperative, and be loving toward each other. You see, it's the next challenge. So is that the way that goes? And then let's find that there's, you know, thousands of other beings in other galaxies. And now everybody in this galaxy that's figured out how to, you know, become love with each other has to figure out how to become love with all those people in other galaxies. And you can multiply this, but when you talk about galaxies and thousands of planets and each one with billions of <laughs> individuals on it, suddenly the number of seats starts to go up dramatically and one one finds this limitation of the sweet point uh, probably isn't going to permit that. That probably isn't a good idea from the system's viewpoint. So, but it's possible. Now, on the on the opposite side of that, you've probably heard me talk about the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox is Enrico Fermi, a, a important physicist, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, long since dead. He was talking with his friends at lunch, and the question was, where are they? If these ETs are out there in our universe, we're in a relatively younger part of the universe. There are, there's parts of our universe that are a billion years older than us. So if they progress sort of like we did, they're going to be a billion years worth of evolution ahead of us. Can you imagine what might be a billion years in evolution ahead of us? So they said that even if they could only travel sub-light speeds, not even close to light speeds, if they could only travel like we travel, they should still be here. Because a billion years is a heck of a head start. They should be everywhere. They should be everywhere inhabitable. And there should be so many of them that it should be impossible for them to hide. It's not like they can just sneak around and we don't notice. With that kind of population, it'd be like, I live in New York City, and I think I'm the only person. And if there's other people, they just sneak around and hide. You know, well, it's not like that. If you live in New York City, you'll know if there's other people there. You know, that's a lot of people. There's no way for all those people to sneak around and hide so that you don't see them. So that was the Fermi paradox, and it was considered a very strong, logical um, statement. And lots of people tried to solve it and come up with reasons, and all the reasons, you know, like, well, they're just hiding and so on, turned out to be considered to be, from logic standpoint, turned out to be very weak answers, that they, they weren't very acceptable. There is no strong answer to the Fermi paradox except this one. That is, this is a virtual reality. The virtual reality only needs so many seats. Seven and a half billion seats are plenty. It doesn't need any more. And no, it's not a waste of all of those other trillions of planets and suns because those are never computed. The only thing that's computed is what the, the uh, conscious things on this planet see. That's the only thing that has a, a data stream. So all that other stuff is never computed. All right, a, a, a physicist gets his big telescope and he looks out there and he sees lots of stuff. But as soon as he looks away or turns that telescope off, it's not being computed anymore. You see, so it's not a big waste to have all this universe and only our planets inhabitable. It's not a waste at all. Little uh, stars in the sky are just probably just maybe two bits one for location and one for brightness, and that's it. 
So two bits per star just isn't much. You can have a whole lot of stars for that. So you see, it, it isn't a waste of resources. It would just mean that the system doesn't need more than about seven and a half or maybe 10 or 15, however many billions we end up finally uh, uh, housing here on planet Earth, that that's enough. And that this whole universe is just a potential universe. And the only part of it that really matters is this part, this sun, this planet, and all the rest of it is just props. I can't be. So those are the arguments on both sides. That we are alone, there's a we are alone argument, which is my answer here to the Fermi paradox, and that we are not alone is the idea if you think our evolution of coming together and becoming love and incorporating bigger and bigger sets of entities with more and more cooperation and caring, even though they're very different than us, then that's a reason that that the system would want more individuals. And the system, of course, could have it both ways. It could, for us, if it, if we were the primary uh, thing in this universe, and if integrating with other planets, other places was important, it could just produce civilizations on other planets just for us. They needn't have a history. It could just be a copy and a paste of something that happened elsewhere. And it could just suddenly be there. That's the way digital systems work. You can do all sorts of things with it. The problem is we get into the twist of understanding this problem because we believe that this physical universe is really a physical universe and not a virtual reality. But given that it's a virtual reality, the system can suddenly pop up with another, uh, you know, another galaxy someplace that has uh, lots of creatures in it that we need to learn to love. Maybe it would do that, but it could do it from no history whatsoever. It could just plant them there, see, whenever it needed them. We're not ready for that yet. We can't uh, get that far. Our our travel in space is very limited, so it might not be for another 500 years before the system would have to do that. But it could if that's what it wanted to do, and that still wouldn't mean there was anything else other than just them and us, unless that needed to have something more. But, again, the number of seats uh, is limited. So that's the answer to it. There's no definitive answer, but there's some pretty good arguments on both sides. So we'll just see. And the system is not constrained to either doing it all or doing it not at all. It can do just as much as it wants whenever it wants. All right. Mario has one more question, Tom. It seems obvious, just to put a number to it, that 99% of our friend inhabitants on this PMR are not conscious at all, that everything here is just perceptions and not really solid at all. Given that all is about information inside consciousness, when we think about higher dimensions, such as MPMR, that is non-physical matter reality, the tendency would be to think that everyone inhabiting such a place would or should be more conscious of what really goes on, but since statistics is what seems to rule, I would bet that over the population is also spread all over the curve, including deluded fellows, even if the average Mm -hmm. is better. Can you comment on that? Sure. Um, you, uh, You don't 
lower your entropy by dying. Okay, just by leaving this this uh, physical reality and going into the another virtual reality, um, that doesn't make you smarter. And Mario is correct in his bet. <laughs> what he bet on there is he would win that bet. When you go into the non-physical and the entities you meet there, they are at about the same level of understanding of the big picture as we are here. 99% don't have a clue, just like here. Um, they live in their own small worlds inside their own small virtual realities, and it's not a big difference. So ignorance is uh, among individuated units of consciousness is kind of the standard, whether you're in this virtual reality or some other virtual reality. Now, there are some exceptions, but I'm just talking about in general. That's kind of the way it works. So it's not a whole lot different than it is here. That's interesting to know. All right. Um, I have most of the questions answered, um, actually all of them. Um, Mr. Lopez had one other question on being level and subconscious. If we would like to ask that one, we can do that. And then I'm going to proceed with a lot of MBT forum questions that have been hanging over for a couple of sessions that we haven't gotten to. So we'll, we'll do that unless somebody here present has another question, like one of our new guests. You can type it in and I can read that for you or you can ask the question yourself. I will um, let Mar Mao ask his question on being level and the subconscious. Uh, thank you, Donna. Um, yeah, I had that, that question, but uh, fortunately Tom answered that one in, a, in another uh, chat. Okay, and, uh, okay. Yeah, it was very clear and it was great. All right. Well, so, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> Just want, wanted to make sure you had that. All right. Let's thank go you, on to, yes, let's go on to some of the MBT questions that we have had to skip over because our Sessions have run over. So one question from an MBT forum user, Nessie, um, on generic tests in NPMR and PMR, that's non-physical matter reality and physical matter reality. Um, Tom, yourself and others have spoken about experiencing generic or standardized PMR testing. My question is whether generic tests should also be applied in PMR. <laughs> Well, sometimes they are. Um, yes, there are tests that are exactly the same that people will get as they explore out of body, explore uh, the non-physical, or whether they're just meditating. They'll get a, a set of questions to answer, and they may not even know that it's a test. Many times, that's not that's not something that they realize. All they know is there's a situation. And, you know, sort of like a dream. There's a situation and they have to react to it. And then that situation, they react and then poof, it disappears. And there's another situation and they have to react to that one. And then they do and then poof, that goes away. And then there's another situation. Well, those, when it comes like that, whether it's in a dream or not a body, those are usually tests. The system's trying to gauge just how grown up you are and what you're ready for next. So it can be more helpful in helping you grow up. And I have noticed that some of the tests that I've taken has also been taken, the identical thing, by other people. 
as we compare notes, and then this happened, and then that happened, and they're just precisely identical. So my thought about that is, well, if you got something that works, why wouldn't you continue to use it? You say you don't have to give a a, a new, fresh test to everyone. Uh, mostly these tests don't get around. Most people don't even know that they are tests. So it's not like you're going to find somebody who, oh, yeah, I know that one. You know, I know what the right answers are. That's not likely to happen. Or if it does, it wouldn't happen very often. So, yes, we get these uh, get these tests there that are standardized just because they work well. Get the information that the system wants to know. But we do have standardized tests here. Um, in the U.S., uh, all the kids in all the schools in all the states, all the public schools anyway, in all the states, take the same tests, achievement tests, just to see where they are. And that way they come up with with uh, how well educated, this is what they're trying to measure. I wouldn't say they probably measure that very well, but they're trying to measure how well educated are these kids. And they have a comparative study now because all the kids take the same test. So do the kids in this state or this district or this particular school do better or worse than everybody else? Well, if they do better, you know, send them a few gold stars. And if they do worse, well, find out what you need to do to help them do better. You say, look into that. What is, what's wrong at that school? Is it the principal? Is it the system? Is it the, you know, the neighborhood? And what can you possibly do to help? So it points out areas where you need help. Same thing the system's doing, looking for areas where you need help. So we do have standardized tests here. And many of the, many of the things that happen here that are, that are, uh, uh, that are things that, that help us grow happen to m- multiple people. I've had at least three people tell me that within 10 days or so of one of their parents passing away, they got a phone call from that dead parent. And the phone rings and they pick it up and it's, you know, hi, you know, this is your mom. Just wanted to let you know that everything's all right. I'm doing fine. And usually the person can't speak because they're, you know, <laughs> their mouth is dropped open, the chin's on the floor, and and they don't know what to say. And they did somebody tricking me. That would be cruel, but it really is mom's voice. And they may ask something, so the mom will say something that only the mom would know. Some little detail, call you by a nickname that you were only called, you know, when you were five years old, that nobody else would know. <clears throat> and that way, you know, it's real. And I've had, like I say, several people that have had that same experience. That's not a test. That's just trying to make the person left behind get over their grieving better, more satisfactorily. Kind of make a good a good ending. You know, what do we what do you call it? Good closure. So yes, that happens. And there's other things like that that happen to multiple people. So there are some of those things that also are kind of standard things the system can do to help people evolve. All right, thank you. Um, <coughs> one question we have from another MBT forum user is from Windwalker uh, on Jane Roberts' Seth material. I remember mm-hmm. reading how you and Robert Monroe used Jane Roberts' Seth material as a base model to begin the original Explorer research. Mm-hmm. Do you continue to believe that Seth was an actual uh, NP entity? versus Jane's subconscious, <clears throat> non, that's a non-player entity, versus 
and I think she was channeling him, versus Jane's subconscious, and do you believe all that he conveyed? I ask because I see many parallels between MBT and Seth, Seth's material. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I would answer to both of those, do I believe, do I believe, is no, I do not believe. Believing is counterproductive. Uh, we We started with Seth as a theory because we had no theory. And we looked at maybe a dozen or two books that tried to explain what was then called astral projection, not out of body, to come up with some idea of what was going on and what was happening. And of those books, Seth was the one that seemed to make more sense than the others. All the rest were very physical-based, you know, ectoplasm, oozes out of the top of the head, and da, 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 that kind of thing. And that didn't really go anywhere for us. Seth had a a theory, an overall picture of reality in which the outer body was just one thing that a consciousness could do. So we did start there. But no, um, I do not agree with all the things that Seth said. And whenever you have, well, I shouldn't say that way. I should say I don't agree with all the things that Jane reported that Seth said. Whenever you have a medium reporting uh, someone like Seth, the medium has to interpret what they get. They get a data stream, and they have to interpret it. And their interpretation isn't always what the what the source intended. So you can expect there's going to be errors in that process. It's not a perfect process. <clears throat> there was a couple of things that Seth said that didn't make a lot of sense. They just kind of left you hanging, logically. And there was one thing that he said that uh, I think uh, created a lot of misunderstanding that I disagree with, and that is that time, uh, future, present, and past all exist together. There is no time. That uh, seems to be a something that uh, Jane picked up from elsewhere. That's a very popular idea in science, and it was at the time as well when Jane was doing this. So, no, it's not perfect. And what about Seth? Was that a real thing, or did Jane just get that, you know, out of her own subconscious? It was a real thing. Jane didn't get that out of her own subconscious. It's not that hard to have a conversation with beings that don't have bodies here. That's not like a really bizarre thing to do. It's um, it's easy enough. Now, was Seth just the larger consciousness system, like a guide, you know, making a contact through Jane so he could get some information into the virtual reality that would help people understand a bigger picture? Well, that's a possibility. You know, so if you want to talk about specifics, like was there a Seth, you know, and did he live in a house and, you know, was this his job and that sort of thing, it may not be that buttoned down. We're all really projections of the larger consciousness system, including Seth and including you and I. That's what IUOCs are. <clears throat> but I had some some uh, conversations with Seth and asked him some of my own questions and tried to resolve some of the issues, and I found a, a a being that was sounded a lot like Seth and had conversations with it. But was that just the larger conscious system sending me a, you know, information? You never know. Or was it some other IUOC like a Seth? Or how much of it do you make up on your own? All of those are possibilities and you never can tell for sure 100% which you're getting. You see, there's three ways to get data from the system from some other IUOC, or from yourself. 
because you are consciousness. You get to create information. It's what we do. You don't get tags on any of those, which means you don't, they don't come with identifiers. Oh, this is from the LCS and this is from an IUOC and this is your own imagination. They all mix together in a, in a single thing and you have to interpret it. Never are you 100% certain where any of it comes from. So that's why I don't believe <laughs> because there is always uncertainty. You have to stay skeptical and you have to realize that much of what goes on in the subjective world has a lot of uncertainty. That doesn't make it fake or not useful. Information is what's real. So that was information. Information is what's most real. The question isn't, did Seth really, you know, live as a being and do this? That's a very poor question. It doesn't go anywhere. It's an ego kind of question. The real question is, is the information useful? If the information is useful, then you use it. If the information is not usual, useful, then you discard it. It's just that simple. Where the information comes from, you'll never know. And that's really the wrong question. We're used to doing that here. We hear information. We want to vet the source. Oh, did they have a PhD when they said that? Uh, you know, how, how would they know? And we, we try to filter information by vetting the source. You can't do that in a non-physical. You just get data. And then all that data is smushed together. It may just be one source or the other, or it may be a combination of any of those sources. But that's it. You'll never know. So it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Is, is it useful? Is the only thing that matters. So there aren't anything such as uh, <laughs> credentials in MPMR. It's just quality of being as far as that yeah. goes. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And you, you, you have to assess everything by its usefulness. That's the only assessment you can make. And you need to do that skeptically. All right, I'll move on to the next question from an MBT forum user, Studentarius. I have a question about the concepts of ownership and property. These concepts, including the concept of justice, <clears throat> seem to be at the root of uh, politics in PMR. Some argue that it is unjust to claim exclusive ownership over really anything. Others claim that we come into the world owning our bodies, our thoughts, and our labor, and this justifies our claims of exclusive ownership over external PMR objects. On the one hand, claiming exclusive ownership over something <clears throat> is considered something like theft from the communal property of all. And on the other hand, theft is when someone takes your private property from you against your will. I'm interested in how MBT would approach this problem. I wonder if politics should come down to a sort of sovereignty of the will. I'm aware that the science certainty principle <coughs> is based upon a preservation of freedom of the will, as is the LCS's non-intervention policy. If we guarantee every individual freedom of the will insofar as they do not interfere with others' freedom of, of will and encourage through some game theoretical incentives, easy and obvious cooperation. Perhaps we can construct a politics that is both collectivist in a sense that it is cooperative and compassionate, yet individualistic in the sense that every individual 
is still guaranteed autonomy, but it is not obvious to me how MBT handles the question of property and ownership. Okay, and he's right uh, where he was leading that we need to all get along and work together at the end. Yes, that's that's where we need to go. It needs to be, um, things need to uh, work for the benefit of the whole, but they also have to work for the benefit of each person trying to grow up. So we need the individual to be able to do those things that uh, optimize their own growth, and we need the collective to be able to optimize things for the growth of the whole. So both of those things have to work together. Now, if you are, you know, if you start with the assumption that people are full of fear, you know, which they are, you know, if we start with the assumption that the people we have here, are the people we're always going to have, if you have a lot of fearful people with a lot of, with low quality of consciousness and high entropy, then any kind of political system that you can think up isn't going to work well. There is no perfect economic, social, political system for fearful people. You see, if you have a population that is, for the most part, loving, caring, considerate, it's about other, not about themselves, then you can have both. You can have the individual is supreme and the collective is supreme. And there's no conflict. The only time you have conflict between the whole and the individual is when the individuals have fear. Okay? Think about that. If you are a being of love and you don't have fear, then what is it <clears throat> that you want? Well, it's all about other. If you're a being of love, it's not about you. It's about other. You want everybody else to have what they need to grow up. And that's what you're willing to work for and, and, uh, you know, get energized because it's about other. So you see, if everybody in your social system cares about other and is not focused on self, okay, these are all high quality of consciousness people, then any system that you can imagine will work. It doesn't matter if it's collectivist or, you know, individualist or what it is. Start with any system and it will soon change itself to be the optimal system if you have a population that is love-based. So the system itself, the economic system, the political system, isn't what's critical here. What's critical is the quality of consciousness of the population in this system. Okay. So now, if you go to the opposite extreme and say that almost everybody in this system is full of fear, that's all about them, and they don't really care much about anybody else but themselves. Then again, no matter what the system is, it isn't going to work well. It's going to be dysfunctional. And no matter how many rules and laws and constraints and whatever you try to make to, to kind of force people to act better, it won't work because you can't make people just act. They are going to be themselves. They'll be themselves after they go home and shut the door. They'll be themselves in, in any way. The only way you're going to be able to control that behavior is back to, uh, what is it, 1984, where there's a camera in every every room of every house, everywhere. And the, the state keeps track of every motion, every idea, and every conversation. Well, that itself already 
is a failed system. Obviously, that's kind of fascism to the nth degree. So if you have to have fascism to the nth degree in order to create, create a state that acts like it's caring, you see, that's a, you know, that's an oxymoron. Those two don't go together. It doesn't work. So you can't do that. What you have to do is solve the problem, not, not does try to make a symptom better. The symptoms are our, our cultures, our, our legal system, our ownership of property, our everything else, class systems, our economics, all of that is very suboptimal because it's all populated by, run by people with a lot of fear, low quality of consciousness. It doesn't work well. It won't work well. No matter what you do, no matter who you put in charge of it, no matter what kind of structures you make, it just won't work well. So the only solution is to fix the problem. You see, all that dysfunction you see is a symptom, not the problem. So you fix the problem by first fixing yourself. You become a being of love, which then helps other people around you become a being of love. And if we all get rid of our fear and care about each other, then the system all by itself will reconfigure itself to be the optimal system for both individuals and for the collective. Because everybody's number one motivation in the system is to be helpful to others. You see, so here you are an individual in that system, and you'd say, well, I'd just like to stay home and write poetry because that's what I really like to do. And I think that would be a contribution to my fellow man to have this wonderful poetry. And the system would say, we will try to make that work for you because we want you to be happy because we care about you because you are other. And that's what we care about. So things would be adjusted to let the individual be and do to the maximum capability and interest that they would have. See? And generally, there's enough in a, in a system that is that cooperative. There is enough production. There's enough stuff in such a system that it can let everybody be who they are, be authentic, contribute in the way they best contribute, and still the whole works fine. You see? So that's really the problem. It's not just about property rights or not. It's it's what you do with the property. It's your intent with the property. If you live in a in a culture that says, okay, we have ownership of property, and you get there first, and you're wealthy, so you buy up all the property and say, all right, I own everything. Well, if then you make everybody pay you money if they walk across your property, and you own it all, so everybody has to pay you, eventually you end up with all the money. Well, but that's low quality. You see, that's not good. If you own all that property and you say, everybody's welcome. Come to live on this property. I just need this little piece of it and everybody else is welcome to it. Then owning the property and having that idea is just the same as not owning the property at all. You see, so it doesn't matter the ownership or not ownership. What matters is the quality of the people. So when we look at the things like, should we have property rights or not? We're trying to work on symptoms, things in the legal structure that help cause dysfunction. You can't get rid of the dysfunction until you make the people less fearful.
And no, it's not going to be the case that everybody is a person of love. That's not going to work. But if you just have a majority, the whole thing would work really well. So that's, that's how that works. It's the wrong question to ask. It's not, it's, you know, the property rights is not really the point. The property rights are irrelevant. Either way you do it, if you have loving people, it'll work the same whether they own it or they don't own it. See, if you don't have loving people, it'll probably work the same whether they own it or they don't own it. They'll just take it by force if they're not loving people and say, all right, this I stake out for me and can you take it away from me? Which is mostly the way it worked, you know, what, 100 years ago. That's the way a lot of land got settled. You just squatted on it and dared anybody else to move you off of it. I guess that's enough on that subject. Let's do the next one, Donna. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think just one comment. I think that uh, people consider under these <laughs> under the circumstances you described being cooperative and compassionate um, that they will lose their individuality or their power. But you, I know, have stated before that you you don't ever lose your individuality <coughs> or, or no. your power. You just actually, become actually, actually more. Exactly. The, the opposite happens. In a, in, a, in a society where everybody cares about other, you have the maximum amount of individual um, individuality. Your choice matters. Your choice not only matters to you, it matters to everybody, you see. So you get the maximum amount of of choice, of having it the way you want it. And the system will just adjust to accommodate you. Now, if you imagine a, a system that doesn't have enough resources so that half the people are bound to starve and that sort of thing, well, that's not likely to be this loving system we're talking about. It's likely to be a very fearful system. In this loving system, the cooperation is very productive and very efficient. And um, unless you make up something very... Um, bizarre that caring efficient cooperative society will have plenty for everybody and will want everybody to have what they need and do what they want to do so it maximizes individual freedom and it also maximizes collective productivity both maximize if you have low entropy people Right. All right. Thank you. Uh, next question is from Married from uh, Ireland. Um, I have a question <clears throat> related to the probability model database. I love the probability model. This makes total sense. When Tom speaks of the system calculating probability for the next delta t, does this refer to probable calculations on a particle level? I think the delta T is uh, involving time, so or a pixel level, or something bigger. I'm missing something in the understanding on this. I find it not easy to absorb that probable futures would be calculated on the level of a particle or even a chunk of volume like a pixel, as this does not appear efficient to me. I love if Tom would expand on this more, please. Yeah. Yeah, well, the asker of the question is correct. That would not be very efficient. Remember, the reality, the virtual reality only exists 
in the minds of the players. There is no virtual reality as a thing. You see, you're a, you're a player of World of Warcraft, but that World of Warcraft map, the rivers, the streams, the elves, the barbarians, and all of the things that are in that map don't really exist anywhere. They only exist in the minds of the players. The system only has to send data to a player to describe to that player what's happening in his little piece of the map. So if you are a player and you don't happen to be uh, you know, running a big uh, atom smasher in CERN, then it's not going to have to compute anything that has to do with little particles. And most of us, of course, live in the macro world, so the particles are all irrelevant to that data stream because most of us are not looking at particles. And that goes even for the particles that we depend on. We breathe oxygen. So here we all are. You know, we're alive. We're on this. We're sitting in front of our computers and we're, we're sharing this conversation. Does the system have to render oxygen molecules for us to breathe? No, no oxygen molecules need be rendered anywhere except where they're being measured. If they're not being measured, they don't have to be rendered because if there isn't some consciousness, some individual unit of consciousness who needs to have data concerning particles or oxygen molecules, then they're just not rendered. The effects of the oxygen are rendered. What's the probability that there'll be enough oxygen for all of us to sit here and live while we have this conversation? Well, there's this much plankton in the oceans. There's this many trees, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, the probability is pretty high that we all will have plenty of oxygen while we have this conversation. Therefore, we all just keep on keeping on because that's the probable outcome. See? So no, particles don't have to be rendered, don't have to be computed, except where people are looking at measuring particles. Other than that, you go up to higher levels. It's all done with simulation. It's not done from the bottoms up where we take the little particles and try to make the macro world out of particles. That's the way scientists believe the world works, but that is very inefficient. Like you say, that's that's nonsense to run a virtual reality that way. You run a virtual reality from the top down using probability and you only get into particles when you need to. You only produce as much resolution as you need to. So let's say you're wearing uh, glasses that aren't quite a best prescription for you. So everything you see is a little fuzzy. You don't see things really, really sharp. Then the system doesn't have to send you data, will not send you data with all that sharpness in it. It just sends you the data that you need to experience the world that you're going to experience. See? So the system is efficient. And uh, it won't do things that are terribly inefficient computationally, like starting with particles and working their way up to the, to the macro world. So when we look at the probable future, we're mostly looking at behavior, not molecules but behavior, and that behavior is something that we can look at, probably even quantify in the sense that we have a record of everything that every individual said, did, thought, felt, all of that. And if you have that much data on somebody, you're pretty good at predicting what they're going to do next. 
you'd be wrong every once in a while, but mostly you'll have it right, particularly since these predictions don't go at 10 to the minus 44 seconds at a time. Not a lot changes in that much time. All right. She has a second part to her question, which is again on probability. Um, Tom speaks about the databases being interactive. He provided an example that with clear intent, it would be possible to interact with a database and query what would have happened if Hitler had won World War II. Um, she goes on then to say, um, World War II, as an example, ended over 70 years ago. And so in a specific example, then why would the system want to store probable outcomes that didn't happen when there is a zero likelihood that those could happen but didn't? Because in this case, the Second World War is long over. So it doesn't seem efficient to me to store probability data in this scenario when it is not likely that the Second World War would happen again. I'd love to hear more about this, please. Okay. The system doesn't necessarily store everything that ever happened. You're right. That would be inefficient. But as long as there are people around with memories, with data, with information about an event, then the system will store some data on that. Uh, now, the, the, the level of detail, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say, uh, it may, uh, scrub out some of the, some of the, the detail and not have to, uh, save things that are by its judgment inconsequential. Uh, like was, you know, that desk made out of mahogany or was it made out of pine? You know, that's kind of something that really isn't important and it may just let that go and it's just a desk and it would render it as wood. You know, maybe uh, wood that you couldn't really tell what it was. So in the details, that might be the case. But as long as there are people around, as long as there are conscious players that have memory of what went on and where it went on, then you have facts in the game about what went on. And if you have those facts, then you want to have some data to support those facts. And yes, the data probably gets less and less detailed over time, but you still have to have that date. When I, when I did that, I probably did that particular, uh, question looking at World War II. I, I did that maybe, I don't know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And I did it just because I wondered, could I do this? Would it work? And what would I get? So for me, it was just a, a an experiment. And I indeed did get it. And it did work. And I think it would still work today, although I haven't done it since, because there's enough general information in the system that can work that. So as long as there's people who could ask the question, then the system's going to keep the data in case they do. Now, that's not terribly efficient in the sense you might you might say they just drop all that data out and somebody asks, they'd say, sorry, that data has been deleted. But the system doesn't like to do that. The databases are there for a reason. They're to help us get bigger pictures. You learn things from doing those what-if analysis. And it's important to our education. Particularly, you get to the point where you can do that, uh, get into those databases reliably. It helps you see bigger pictures much better by being able to do it. So it's a learning tool. It's a growth tool. And the system, I think, is willing to 
save, you know, take a hit on the storage required in order to keep that tool viable for us as long as there's somebody here. Now, let's say it's 10,000 years in the future and nobody that's alive now has ever heard of World War II. It's just totally outside of anybody's reality. There's no history left that it even mentions that it happened. Not, not any books, not anything. And you can make up a story if you want that would maybe create that situation. You know, maybe we had nuclear war and everything got destroyed. But whatever. You have a situation where those facts disappear. There is no IUOC that is aware that there was a World War II. Now the data will be deleted because it's no longer useful. So what Susie and Sam did 500 years ago, you know, on their vacation to the beach is probably not in the database anymore. But the stuff that big things like World War II is going to stay in the database a long time because there will all, without a big catastrophe, there will always be some people that will want information and will be able to learn something from it. So the database for 10,000 years ago would be non-existent or extremely fuzzy if we wanted to uh, check what the living conditions were, something like that. Well, well, yeah, if you go 10,000 years ago, you're about pre-writing. You know, they didn't, they didn't have a lot of history books that were written in those days. They maybe had some writing that was going on at 10,000, but you're right about at the edge where, where uh, literacy, literacy happened. So if you didn't have anything written down, you'd only have oral history. And after that many years, the oral history probably isn't going to be, you know, full of facts. It's just going to be generalities. It's not going to be a, a, a full of individual facts. So it only keeps as much as it needs. So the conditions, the the way the Earth looked, the visual information that existed would not necessarily be available then. Well, prompt, you know, it's the system would have a couple of choices. It could keep individual things like what the table was made out of and figure that's that's irrelevant so you drop that but what the what the uh, landscape looked like that may be something bigger that somebody may want to question but what it could do then let's say it doesn't keep that data throws all that data out but somebody asks the question well what did the landscape look like well the system goes in and it could have looked like one of 20 different things it takes a random draw from the distribution of the probabilities and that's what it tells you that the landscape looked like you see, so it'll give you an answer, but the answer may or may not be accurate. So it just keeps the amount of data that it thinks it might need at a level it thinks it might need it. I see. Interesting. <laughs> uh, next question from an MBT forum user um, from somebody. That's his name. In many, if not all, religions, there exists the concept that God somehow favors or rewards those who seek spiritual advancement over those who simply don't care. So the question is, does the LCS indeed reward those who make conscious <coughs> efforts to lower their personal entropy on a consistent basis? And by reward, I don't mean through the granting of material accruements, rather by granting such people more attention and perhaps even assistance in their efforts to advance spiritually. Yes, the answer to that is yes, absolutely. It's a, it's to the system's advantage to 
optimize our growth. Well, it's given us this entropy reduction trainer, but it can, if you have, if there are people who are engaged in learning and growing, trying to get rid of fear, it is in its best interest to help them. A lot of that help turns out to be what we call synchronicities, where stuff just happens. The thing we need just kind of falls at our feet, just comes to us just as we need it. This is uh, the system helping out. Yes, of course it does. And you're right. It's not material things. It's things that help the person grow up. So you have a person that isn't going to grow up, doesn't care about growing up. They're very self-centered. They're very egotistical. They're arrogant. They have no idea and really couldn't care less. That system isn't going to go around and try to force them to change their ways. It has to be somebody who is ready. You've heard this before, you know, when the student is ready, the master will come. Well, it is like that. When you're ready, then you will get the help that you need. The system thinks that help is just going to blow up your ego or confuse you. Then it won't help you maybe directly, but will help you indirectly. It still can help you by arranging your life such that you get good opportunities to learn lessons. But you have to reach out and, and learn them.